the Department of Justice will be unwavering in its pursuit of equal justice under law. We undertake this task with determination and urgency, knowing that change cannot wait. Thank you. No, thank you, Mr. Attorney General. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. I am. From Pacifica Radio, Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ in Seattle on KODX, in Janesville, Wisconsin on WADR, and in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the Internet, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSendler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, fantastic fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today for another thrilling edition of the Bradcast. Ironically... Uh, as this week is turning out uh, to be policing week, it seems, on the broadcast for some reason. For good reason. About an hour before airtime, uh, some police action or another about a block or so from our studio here in Hollywood has... Can you hear it? Ha- <laughs> has resulted in a police helicopter continuously circling around above our studio here. <laughs> So, uh, A, please forgive the noise. B, no, it's not you. You are not being tracked by the police. The noise (laughs) is coming from us. Uh, Though, C, maybe we are being tracked by the police. (laughs) I'm not sure. Gosh, I hope not. But I will say it is so loud at times it has rattled the windows and doors and the very frame of the building. But everything seems to be okay. I'm not sure exactly what it is. I've heard no explosions, no demonstrations. So whatever it is, uh, hopefully everything is okay. But our apologies for the uh, extra added noise uh, you'll enjoy with today's broadcast, no charge. Uh, anyway, uh, speaking of the police, the Justice Department is opening a sweeping investigation into policing practices in Minneapolis, as you heard at the top there, after a former officer was convicted in the killing of George Floyd there, according to Attorney General Merrick Garland. 
in his announcement on Wednesday. The decision comes a day after former officer Derek Chauvin was found guilty on all counts of murder and manslaughter in Floyd's death last May, setting off a wave of relief across the country. The death prompted months of mass protests against policing and the treatment of black people in the U.S. With protest marches happening, remember, not just in the U.S. last year, but around the world in response to what we all saw. The Justice Department was actually already investigating whether Chauvin and the other officers involved in Floyd's death violated his civil rights. Oh, do you think? Do we have a civil right to not be murdered? Just asking. But as Garland noted uh, as he opened his announcement at DOJ today, uh, quote, yesterday's verdict in the state criminal trial does not address potentially systemic policing issues in Minneapolis. The new investigation is known as a pattern or practice probe, examining whether there is a pattern or practice of unconstitutional or unlawful policing in the department, and it will be a more sweeping probe of the entire department than what we saw in the Chauvin case alone. Uh, It could result in major changes to policing there. Depending on what the uh, Department of Justice finds, they will examine the use of force by police officers, including force used during protests and whether the department engages in discriminatory practices. It will also look into the department's handling of misconduct allegations and its treatment of people with behavioral health issues. A senior Justice Department official said that prosecutors chose to announce the probe a day after the verdict because they did not want to do anything to interfere with Chauvin's trial. Three other ex-Minneapolis police officers, however, also charged in Floyd's death. They will be tried together beginning uh, August 23. Attorney General Merrick Garland closed his remarks this way on Thursday. Most of our nation's law enforcement officers do their difficult jobs honorably and lawfully. I strongly believe that good officers do not want to work in systems that allow bad practices. Good officers welcome accountability because accountability is an essential part of building trust with the community and public safety requires public trust. I have been involved in the legal system in one way or another for most of my adult life. I know that justice is sometimes slow, sometimes elusive, and sometimes never comes. The Department of Justice will be unwavering in its pursuit of equal justice under law. The challenges we face are deeply woven into our history. They did not arise today or last year. Building trust between community and law enforcement will take time and effort by all of us. But we undertake this task with determination and urgency, knowing that change cannot wait. Thank you. Attorney General Merrick Garland today at the DOJ announcing the uh, pattern and pr- pattern or practice probe of the Minneapolis Police Department. That probe, while seemingly long overdue, uh, is of course welcome, but arguably 
needs to be a bit wider, I would argue, to include Minneapolis's neighbor, Brooklyn Center, Minnesota, where black 20-year-old Dante Wright was killed by a 26-year veteran cop just over a week ago during what was theoretically a routine traffic stop for out-of-date tags and, yes, an air freshener dangling from his rearview mirror. Wright's killing sparked protests, which in turn sparked attacks on the protesters by both Brooklyn Center and state police agencies. And as protesters were attacked by police, so were the journalists covering those protests to let the world know what was going on there. Journalists covering that protest in a Minneapolis suburb last Friday night were forced on their stomachs by law enforcement, rounded up, and were only released after having their face and press credentials photographed. According to a USA Today report, it was worse than it even sounds. The attacks on First Amendment press freedoms occurred just hours after a judge had issued a temporary order barring the Minnesota State Patrol from using physical force or chemical agents against journalists. Minnesota State Patrol on Saturday said in a statement, quote, Troopers checked and photographed journalists and their credentials and driver's licenses at the scene in order to expedite the identification process. Checked? Checked their credentials, made them lie on the ground to check their credentials, took photographs of their driver's licenses. The Minnesota State Patrol said that while some journalists were, quote, detained and released during enforcement actions after providing credentials, no journalists have been arrested. So even after they provided credentials, they were detained and later released. But because you don't call it an arrest, it is OK. Really? Approximately 500 protesters were marching peacefully that day until around 9 p.m. on Friday night when an incident triggered police to start using chemical irritants such as tear gas and pepper balls and projectiles, according to Jasper Colt, a photojournalist with the USA Today Network. After about 30 minutes, law enforcement told protesters to leave the area in a loudspeaker announcement calling the demonstration an unlawful assembly. The crowd then thinned out, uh, but a small number of protesters and media were left to cover it. Colt described police then corralling protesters and media into one group and yelling for them to, uh, to quote, get flat on our stomachs. Law enforcement took pictures of journalists' credentials and IDs, as well as photos of the journalist's face. Colt said that Minnesota state and local police were involved in the incident, explaining, quote, they were the ones with the guns. So we were like, OK, I guess we have to do this. The court order, which was apparently ignored by the cops, was part of an ongoing case filed by the ACLU after journalists said that they were targeted during protests sparked by the death of George Floyd last year. The uh, Minnesota State Patrol is also prohibited from, quote, arresting, threatening to arrest or threatening or using physical force against members of the press. The agency said in a statement that MSP will not photograph journalists or their credentials, but apparently they did so anyway. 
The ACLU said Friday evening's incident was a direct violation of the temporary court order. Tim Evans, a freelance photojournalist who covered protests for the European Press Photo Agency, said earlier in the week that officers tackled him to the ground, punched him in the face, and sprayed him with a chemical irritant while he identified himself as media. He said he showed the police his press badge and had a press sticker that covered his backpack where an officer knelt to zip tie Evans' hands behind his back as he was arrested, where he had to see that press logo on his backpack. He also had a camera around his neck and another one slung on his shoulders when he was tackled, he said. The officer took Evans's press badge threw it on the ground and said he didn't care if Evans was media. If it weren't for his protective gear, he said, which included goggles, a respiratory mask and a helmet, Evans said he would have been badly injured. It's egregious and horrific, he said. We are nothing as a society, as a democracy, without a free press, and it's constantly being challenged and constantly being abused. Evans also witnessed police spray two photojournalists from the Agence France Presse with a chemical irritant. Photos of that incident, that confrontation with police, have gone viral on Twitter. The photos show that they... Did you see those photos, Des? I did. They They were pretty shocking. Yeah. they, uh, they, They were clearly media with, you know, they had press written all over them as they huddled together while a cop just stood there calmly spraying them. It reminded me, it's not unlike what we saw last week when a videotape emerged of white cops in Windsor, Virginia, calmly pepper spraying a a completely polite and compliant black uniformed army lieutenant by the name of Caron Nazario, who had uh, been pulled over for missing tags on his car, which actually were not missing at all. He had just bought the car and the temporary tags were taped inside the windows, clearly visible in the cop body camera footage of this December event, which was only made public just last week as part of the lawsuit that Nazario, who uh, fortunately survived, uh, has now filed against the two cops. Despite the outrageous actions against journalists by the Minnesota State Troopers, Their statement said that the MSP has not and will not target media for doing the important work of showing those who are exercising their First Amendment rights to express themselves or those who or those who are engaged in the violent illegal activity law enforcement is trying to prevent. Brooklyn Center Mayor Mike Elliott said at a news conference last week, quote, gassing is not a human way of policing. And he said he does not agree with police using pepper spray, tear gas and paintballs against demonstrators. That is where our friend Will Bunch of the Philadelphia Inquirer picked up the ball. Hopefully uh, not a paintball to charge (laughs) that uh, overly aggressive and systemically racist violence by the police continues to violate all of our rights and, yes, makes us less safe, not more so. Will Bunch joins us next from Philly on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman.
What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter, and we do it all independently without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. I think it's time we stop, children. What's that sound? Everybody look what's going down. Yes, please do. It's hard to not look what's going down. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. And yes, incidentally, as we are uh, covering excessive policing, there is a police helicopter continuing (laughs) to circle above us. Yep. Do not be alarmed. Everything is fine. Uh, After a veteran officer, also head of their police union, shot and killed Dante Wright, a 20-year-old unarmed black motorist, during a traffic stop over expired tags and, yes, a dangling air freshener, you might think the cops in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota, would have at least a brief moment of reflection, even contrition. Yeah, right, snarked Philadelphia Inquirer's longtime columnist Will Bunch in one of his columns this week, noting instead that officers in the Minneapolis suburb just 10 miles or so from the corner where Officer Derek Chauvin kneeled on the neck of a dying George Floyd sparked an American racial reckoning that apparently wasn't raised a version of the thin blue line flag over their embattled station house, which was their bold and outrageously arrogant signal that Brooklyn Center was about to become some kind of Alamo for racist, oppressive policing in America, writes Bunch. He says it was their opening salvo in what quickly devolved into a police riot. Well, maybe, but I remember the Alamo, and it did not turn out well for its defenders. Joining us now from Philadelphia, where, uh, well, a city that he describes this week as where our fraying First Amendment was written and adopted 234 years ago, is the great Will Bunch. Oh, Mr. Bunch, welcome back to the broadcast, sir, on yet another busy Newsweek, though, thankfully... So far, anyway, it is not quite as busy as the last time you joined us on January 6th of this year, as I recall. Yeah, no, today, hey, Brad, how's it going? No, today is not not January 6th, thank God, Uh, although um, it could have been, it could have been a more momentous day if things have gone differently in that Minneapolis courtroom. Oh, yeah. uh, No, when I saw you were on, I thought, oh, no, and this was a a day or two ago that you were going to be joining us. I thought, oh, no, (laughs) that means that the Chauvin verdict is going to be on the same day and that it's not going to be good. Thankfully, it came a day earlier and it was one of the, uh, well, one that many of us had been hoping for. So you are not a riot magnet, Mr. Bunch, no matter matter what they say. not the riot indicator that we thought. That's right. So first, uh, uh, Will, you're reaction to the three guilty verdicts against uh, Derek Chauvin in Minneapolis on on uh, Tuesday well uh, cer- certainly you know it was it was gratifying to see some accountability in that case um, and in a sense justice you know I say in a sense because you know if there was real justice George Floyd would still mm-hmm. be with us obviously and and uh, he, he can never be brought back no matter what action was taken in that courtroom but given 
given the uh, real-life options that we had, I, I do think that was the best possible outcome. But, you know, while, while this trial was underway over the weekend when I wrote this column, mm-hmm. I mean, there's a reason why I'm focused on the, I'm very focused on the institution of policing mm-hmm. and, and, and the broader kind of way of policing in this country because, you know, there's, there's a school of thought that if we just weed out the bad apple cops, you know, and Derek Chauvin being Exhibit A is the one that even mm-hmm. even some, but apparently not all, FOP leaders agree that this cop was a bad apple. So if we if we just weed out, you know, the handful of Derek Chauvin, then then uh, everything will be great with policing in America. And you know, unfortunately, that's just not the case. And you know, I mean, and the thing is, are are, are there good are there good cops? Are there good people who work in our police departments? Uh, of course, there are. I mean, most of us know them we grew up with people like that or we have we live in our neighborhood they're police officers and and they're good human beings but they're part of a system Mm -hmm. and the system is corrupt you know it's corrupted by systemic racism for one thing uh which really goes back all the way to the roots of american policing all the way back to the to the slave patrols in the south which Mm -hmm. kind of Set us, set us on our path towards the American way of policing. And, you know, I think, I think what you saw in Brooklyn Center, which you um, described so well in that introduction, is the American way of policing. It, it's the backlash. It's the yeah. American way of policing trying to fight back. And they wanted, you to, they wanted you to know this is what was happening, which is why they raised that thin blue line flag Let over me- the station. Yeah, and I want to get into some of those specifics and the broader topic that you've been focused yeah. on. Does it give you, but you know, does it give you any encouragement today uh, after watching these last, uh, you know, the week or two of the Chauvin trial, where you actually had police, uh, really <laughs> seemingly for the first time in anyone's uh, recent memory, actually coming out and testifying against their fellow cops? Should should we take some uh, encouragement from that? Will? Take some encouragement. It's it's progress, absolutely. You know, it. In fact, I, I haven't written it yet, but I'm I'm working on my next column, obviously, and it's it's going to be inspired by the version in the case. And mm-hmm. and um, the, the event this reminds me of, in a way, even though they're slightly different arenas, is in 2008 when Barack Obama was elected president. Uh, it, I mean, if you were like me and you were born and grew up in the 60s and 70s, like I did. Um, you know, you, you, you would, would have been really doubtful that we'd ever see a black president mm-hmm. in our lifetime. You know, and we did. And, and you know, but many millions of, of white people voted for, the, for this African-American man to mm-hmm. become president. And uh, it was something that had been unthinkable years earlier. Mm-hmm. And it was absolutely a sign of progress on some level. But it, it, didn't, really, it didn't really change or speak to the broader systems of racism in this country and in fact in some ways Barack Obama was kind of hampered in his, in his ability to challenge those uh, traditions and institutions mm. you know yeah and uh, I, I feel the same way I mean is it progress that the chief of police testified against Derek Chauvin uh, yes it is absolutely and it does it does show that um, this national conversation that we've been trying to have, that, that, you know, really since Ferguson, I would mm-hmm. say, uh, that really uh, stepped up, you know, when George Floyd was killed last year, yeah. is having an, is having an, an impact. It, but, it, you know, it's, it's, the, it's, it's the 
bending of the moral arc of the universe, but as, as Martin Luther King said, right. it's a long arc. Yes. It's a very long arc, you know. Which and exactly what I was thinking about as you were describing that. It is yeah. a very, a, a too long, a torturously long arc. Um, but it does seem to be bending, as you say, uh, towards yeah. justice. And I guess we have to celebrate that but it also in many ways allows us to uh you know sort of get into some of the more specific points and the things now that uh, the world the nation seems to be more open to it you wrote uh this week in your in your column be, again before the verdict in the George Floyd uh, murder case came in uh, that from Minneapolis to your hometown of Philadelphia, cops and troops flood the zone, violate our rights and make us less safe. And indeed, as the Brooklyn Center protests around the killing of Dante Wright last week got underway, there was almost an immediate curfew that was put into place, right. which inevitably seems to result in confrontations between police and protesters as they try to clear the streets. Why is this done at all, at least in the absence of, you know, ongoing rioting or something? It seems like these curfew times have now become uh, more of a, a, a target time for when the conflict is scheduled, uh, you know, rather than anything that actually guarantees or maintains order or safety. Is that my imagination? That's kind of how I look at it. Oh, 10 p.m. curfew. Yeah. That's the time that uh, we need to watch. Right. And, and you know, I think, I think the big question we need to focus on is are we, you know, are, are, are our institutions, whether it's the police or the National Guard or the politicians who theoretically control those entities, you know, are they making decisions that escalate tension and escalate the, the opportunities for confrontation, or are they making decisions that will de-escalate the, mm -hmm. the possibility of a confrontation? In that column, I, I think the curfew is a great example. What I was particularly bothered about was um, late last week, you know, where I live in Pennsylvania, so we're talking about a thousand miles away from Minneapolis. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the governor of the state, who is a Democrat who once a few years back was named in a survey the most liberal governor in America. I'm not really sure if that's exactly true about Tom Wolf, but he, but he does have this moniker of, of a liberal, progressive kind of Democrat. Um, late last week, he goes, well, it looks like there's going to be a verdict in the uh, Chauvin trial next week. So I am now activating a thousand National Guard troops, mm -hmm. and I'm sending them to Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, to me, this is like, I think officials should plan and have, you know, plans in the works. But, you know, when you're, you know, sending sending National Guard troops and their armored personnel carriers and, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, their, these heavily armed camouflage-wearing troops into the streets of a major American city like Philadelphia, not even knowing what the verdict is going to be, you're just being overly mil militaristic and confrontational. And I think, I think the curfew is the same way. I think, I think many, uh, you know, I think the police practices that we saw in Brooklyn Center, uh, many of them are examples of that. I mean, they were just way too quick to put up fences and then get in these phalanxes behind these fences and, and point their pepper spray mm -hmm. or projectile guns at, at people. And, um, you know, I mean, if, if we're really having this American reckoning about policing that supposedly began last May after George Floyd was murdered, um, it doesn't look like one because I mean, it, it, you know, it looks like looks like the lessons that a lot of authorities think that they learned from last summer and last spring is, you know, is that we're not being forceful enough that we need to call up more troops and more, 
you know, tanks and they need to have, you know, more, a, a bigger stock of uh, tear gas or, or projectiles. Um, mm-hmm. well, I, you- I mean, to me... To me, that's very just a really discouraging sign. You uh, you mention, well, I'm I'm curious what you make of the you know the police as I uh, described, uh, just actively, seemingly defying orders from judges, you know, concerning their treatment of the yeah. media, just blatantly saying, well, we're doing what we want to do anyway. And I wonder if that's uh, somewhat what you're referring to when you argue at the Inquirer this week that the atrocities of Brooklyn Center are the vanguard of something very important and very terrifying that's happening in America right now. Uh, explain what you meant by that. Yeah, um, you're right, Brad, in, in the sense that, um, I mean, particularly I'm worried about police unions and I guess more broadly the mindset that's promoted by police unions in this country. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that there is, there is a sense of, of being kind of above the law. And, um, you know, I, I was thinking, you know, in the context of, of Derek Chauvin and the George Floyd verdict, you know, we, we, we are, you know, rightfully celebrating that this officer was held accountable. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I mean, he was held accountable for committing this egregious murder that was captured on videotape in which he couldn't argue, as they usually do in most of these cases that involve a shooting, that it was a split-second decision because <laughs> it happened for over nine minutes, right? right? So, you know, you had all these things going on. And so, yes, in this case, it, with all of those kind of over-the-top factors, we were able to hold one officer accountable. But, you know, in, in, in the introduction, you were talking about some of the things that these uh, officers in Brooklyn Center did, or these state troopers. Uh, uh, you know, like, the, for example, the guy who pepper-sprayed those two French journalists, mm-hmm. which um, is just an incredible picture, you know, which is why it went viral. But I don't, I don't see people racing around saying, we need to find the name of this officer because he needs to be mm-hmm. charged with assaulting these journalists. Mm-hmm. You know, even though even though, again, this was an egregious violation of somebody's, you know, uh, t- you know, two people's First Amendment yeah. rights captured on film, but uh, there's not, you know, I mean, we're using, you know, we're using facial recognition and all these tools to to catch the uh, the uh, January 6th insurrectionist, which is fine with me. We should be catching those people, but but uh, uh, we're not doing that to find out which which off state troopers are violating people's civil rights. No, and know? that guy, um, that guy spraying those journalists, he's just standing there. You can see his face. Yeah. He seems like he's, uh, you know, clearly right, probably, visible. Probably, it's like if you blow up, if you blow up the picture, I don't know. Maybe you could even see his badge number or whatever. Yeah. Because it's that because it's that blatant, right? Yep. So he wasn't um, trying to hide it. The, you know, the fact yeah. is, although, so, he, and, so, yeah, no, go ahead, go ahead. Uh, yeah, no, I, I just can say so. I, th- I think, I mean, the worry I was trying to express is I think these officers know that for these broader practices that have come to encompass policing, you know, which is, you know, things like stop and frisk and, mm-hmm. and pepper spraying people or, you know, these, these aggressive tactics. I think, I think they know that there's not going to be consequences and that they don't, you know, that even if their bosses say don't do these things, they can still do these things and get away with them. Even if, they, they, even if courts say don't do these things, they can do these things. And that's kind of why I wanted to point that out. Look, I mean, the, yeah, obviously yeah. The, the systemic racism in the system, uh, and, you know, and the just 
endless uh, line of, of, of citizens, civilians, uh, you know, disproportionately people of color who are killed is obviously a far greater crime, uh, you know, than, you know, making a journalist lie on the ground and show their press credentials. But it kind of shows that this is a, a, a band of, of individuals in this yeah. country who feel like they are unconstrained uh, by laws or even court orders. Right, and, and you, raise, you raise an important point, which I was going to make, and I almost forgot to, so I'm glad you brought it up, which is that one, one reason why, you know, you know in, in this column and a few other columns I've written over the years, you know, I focus on these police mm-hmm. abuses of the media, and it, it is, I mean, of course, partly it is because I'm, I'm in the media and I think what we do is important. And I think the First Amendment important, is important, but mm-hmm. the, the other reason I call attention to this is if this is how they treat People who have cameras, who have who have the megaphone of, of working for a large news organization and can mm-hmm. tell the world about what happened to them. Right. I mean, if if this is how they treat people who are clearly marked as journalists and who, you know, if they have half a brain, know are going to like write or, mm-hmm. or publish pictures of what happened to them. How how do you think they're treating citizens when there are no cameras? Yeah, and, and or or citizens who don't have the power of, you know, the New York Times or the AP mm-hmm. or some news organization to go to go tell their story. I yeah. mean, so so to me the fact that if they're doing if they're doing this to reporters what they're doing to, to regular citizens is almost certainly going to be worse. Yeah, you know? imagine. And in fact, it is yeah. worse. You include a remarkable statistic that I had not seen before in your column. And I'm thinking this can't be right, Will. You say uh, quote, cops across America continue to kill citizens at the consistent, mind-numbing rate of three every day? Really? Three a day? Yeah. Yeah. Now, you know, I, uh, well, I mean, the Washington Post and a couple other groups uh, ever since Ferguson have kept these databases, and it's, it's, it's almost, it's, it's depressing how, like, basically it's almost the same number every year. It's like mm. a thousand... A thousand people, which if you do them, or just over a thousand, which if you do the math, is about three a day, or just under three possibly per day. And um, the New York Times just specifically just looked at the days since the since the uh, uh, since the Derek Chauvin trial began, mm-hmm. and it was the same as always. It was mm-hmm. three a day during the trial. Not not that you would really expect it to drop necessarily during the trial, but it didn't. You know, just three every day. Now the caveat is. Of the thousand people killed by the police, you know, a number of these are, are you know, there, there are going to be cases in that list where a, a um, suspect was pointing a weapon at right. an officer, for example, right? And or in the middle of a shooting not, or yeah, so forth. Yeah, right, that's not. Yeah, that's not. That's not. That's not why we're going. That's our, that's why we're not having these mm-hmm. Dante Wright, George Floyd level freakouts a thousand times a year because. Some of these cases, you know, or, mm-hmm. you know, this case in Columbus, Ohio last night, you know, initial reporting made it sound like it was, you know, possibly an egregious case and that, that you know, maybe this woman was on unar- this girl was unarmed. And, you know, I mean, they released, you know, the body cam footage and it does appear that this, this girl had a knife and may have been a threat to another person. And so, you know, and true, although, although shooting them. Yeah, and I want, yeah, I was going <laughs> to just finish. Yeah. That doesn't mean that they handled it in the best way and that 
they couldn't have used like uh, something less lethal, like a taser or exactly. She was I a sixteen-year-old girl, just to be clear. Um, yeah, but no, you're right. right. I mean, there are reasons for this, but let's uh, in the in the few minutes we have. Uh, well, um, the, I, I think there is sort of an upside to all of this. We you know talked about the the uh, arc of justice bending slowly as it does. Um, you cite a, a police expert uh, speaking to NBC News, explaining, "quote This is almost like our." American way of policing is on trial. And she was actually saying that, I think, in a positive way. She was apparently the head of, uh, yeah. of a black yeah. law enforcement association. Right. Um, and, and even if others apparently interviewed in that article uh, did not see that as a good thing. But yeah, isn't such a trial of how our nation does policing work long overdue at this point? Shouldn't this all actually be a good thing that we are airing all of this out and that, you know, we can look at details like, hey, maybe you shouldn't be uh, announcing curfews when a, uh, a, a protest is going on that is nonviolent, for example. Right. And, and, and to me, to me, where the rubber meets the road is, I, I, I mean, I mean, when when there's an individual case like Derek Chauvin's case, should there be a trial and should there be justice? Of, of course, there should be. But I mean, to me, things things aren't really, really going to change until well well two things i guess really i mean first first we need to start changing a number of the laws and and procedures and traditions around policing you know and that and that requires action by legislatures and governors and city councils and uh possibly to some extent by congress uh, obviously and uh, you know and uh you know can can those laws or can those directives from government then help us undo the system the mm-hmm. deeply ingrained systemic problems, mm-hmm. you know. I, I mean, those are the layers. So, so that you know, uh, on, on the first level of that, the laws—it's really a mixed bag right now. I mean, uh, you know, you saw a flood of proposals last spring and last summer after the initial George Floyd protests, and some states and some jurisdictions have have followed through on some levels with some of these changes. Like uh, a, a couple of examples that I, I think are worth calling attention to that the state of Maryland just last week became the first state to undo its police bill of rights, which mm-hmm. gave, gives these kind of superpowers to, <laughs> to police officers right. to avoid accountability for their actions. You know, so that's good. I mean, it's, we're talking about one of 50 states here, but it's, it's, it's great. A number of other states still have these laws on the books. You know, uh, I've been very focused with, um, with the Dottie Wright case and, and with the, um, the case in Windsor, Virginia, which you mentioned up top, mm-hmm. uh, with this whole thing about traffic stops, because yeah. you, ha- you have this practice of, of using what they call pretextual traffic stops mm-hmm. when it's something ridiculous like the uh, air freshener from the rearview mirror, which allegedly obstructs the driver's view, but of course really doesn't. But mm-hmm. um, or or tinted windows, or the bro- or the classic you know broken tail tail lamp or mm-hmm. muffler problem or something like that. That's used to pull over motorists when really it's it's well it's either it's either just racial intimidation you know plain mm-hmm. and simple or else you know the officers would say well we can look for drugs or we can look for weapons and you know the, I mean the whole thing is is just ridiculous and but uh, ironically the state of Virginia which is where that incident happened um, a few months ago just put a law in the books this week where those are now secondary offenses so officers are not able to just pull you over only because they saw an air freshener i mean uh-huh. i guess i guess technically well, if they if they pulled you over for uh, for a primary expen- offense like speeding i guess they could give you 
a kick it. But well, you, you know, I, the, the, these things are progress. But we're talking about things that pass in a few states, and you know, I mean. Well, listen, uh, Will. I think what we're seeing, it seems to me, and I'm curious if you agree. There's a, uh, you know, experiments seem to be going on all over the country now. You know, if policing is on trial, right. then at least there are responses. Uh, you know, to all of this, we had uh, we spoke with uh, with criminology and law expert Jordan Blair Woods. You may know him of the uh, University of Arkansas School of Law. Just yesterday, about exactly what you're talking about, about replacing. Armed police who pull over yeah. people 24 million times a year with unarmed traffic monitors who simply focus on actual traffic violations, you know, and can still give out tickets, but they don't show up with a gun. They don't do investigations into their past if they have any outstanding warrants and all of this stuff. Or, or, or it can be done. Or it can be done automatic or automatically. You know, automation, yeah. Right? yeah. You know, with with cameras and and, and whatnot. And, yeah, and I, I think what that leads to is when we try them, and, and hopefully these experiments will work in a number of places and answer the naysayers, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, so like in Berkeley, California, where they have mm-hmm. civilians giving out tickets now, yep. if they do it for a year or two and, and nothing goes awry and mm-hmm. everything goes well with the program, uh, th- these, thing, these things can become best practices, right? Yes. Where now it's like, well, a few cities tried this and it works, so every city should be should be doing this. Well, and I mean, I mean that that's the best case scenario. And uh, what I would really like to see is, you know, it, it's unfortunate. I, I really wish Minneapolis had followed through with its initial plan after after the George Floyd murder, when they were going to replace their police department with a completely revamped Department of Public Safety. The idea being that, you know, you would have civilians like mental health professionals or mm-hmm. drug counselors or you know, civilian traffic stops. I mean, you would be focused on safety rather than our kind of corrupt system of policing, you know. And as we all know, they, for reasons that are too lengthy and complicated to explain, they chickened out and backed away from that plan so far. It's technically still being discussed, and maybe it could happen at some point. Do you take any um, uh, comfort from the fact that uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland, uh, his announcement, uh, does that give you any hope that they're looking at the Minneapolis police as far as uh, their systemic racism? Does that give you any hope that the Biden administration is taking this this actually uh, seriously, this, you know, to, to somehow bend the curve of this trajectory of, you know, militarized and systemically racist policism, policing that we have seen uh, for the better part of the last decade or two at the very least that at least yeah. at the white house level they seem to get it yeah i mean i mean some of these things that the biden administration is doing are undoing things that trump did which in several cases were undoing positive things that had been done late in the obama administration um late in his term obama had tried to stop these military surplus these purchases of surplus mm-hmm. military equipment by police. They were, you know, trying to enforce these consent degrees with urban police departments that had systemic problems. And Trump Trump and Jeff Sessions and those people came in and undid all of those things, you know. And, and so now Biden and Merrick Garland are having to go in and redo a lot of these things, you know. Uh, and some of them haven't even... Uh, Biden has yet to act on uh, reimposing the uh, the military surplus restrictions. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he should do that. You know, I'm not sure what he's waiting for other than 
optics or something. Well, that, uh, he really should do that. And I think that uh, it, it's going to be a mix. I actually have more confidence in the, like you mentioned, what's going on in Berkeley. I actually have somewhat more confidence in the smaller cities and towns. I have a lot yeah. less co- confidence in the federal level, whether it's the White House and what they're sort of able to do on a limited basis via the DOJ, uh, you know, versus Congress, which is completely broken and cannot and will not actually do anything, it seems. But, you know, these experiments going on around the country. I actually have some confidence in that. Well, I got to get out, but I want to very quickly, uh, your response when you are inevitably accused in bad faith, of course, uh, and by opportunistic buffoons of just hating the police, being anti-police. And I guess that makes you also pro-crime to go with it, as these jerks would say. What's your response to that? I want to see a regime a regime that makes everybody safer. I mean, I think the corrupt American way of policing and and the lack of respect that it causes in these neighborhoods that have crime high crime rates contribute contribute to the high rate of crime, you know, and I think if we had a more commute community oriented focus to public safety, it not only would reduce these quote police involved killings or whatever, which is one goal, but I think I think you would also see lower crime rates. You know, you'd have citizens more willing to report crimes and work with the police if, mm-hmm. or, or the Department of Public Safety that I'd mm-hmm. like to see replace the police, you know, mm-hmm. if we have that. I mean, I think I think it's a tragedy when the police kill an unarmed civilian. I think it's also a tragedy when uh, a young person dies from a, a murder, from crime. But I think there are strategies that we can take that would reduce both. And that's 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 what I want to see happen in this country. All of this, by the way, as you discuss in your uh, in your column yesterday at the Inquirer, uh, all of it has resulted in record gun sales during the pandemic. One yes. mass shooting after another over the past month in what just seems to be an endless cycle now with no escape. Maybe America at this point is the Alamo, Will. I hate to leave it on that uh, dark note, but Will Bunch is a longtime national columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer and the Philadelphia Daily News. You can find his work at Inquirer.com, and you can find him on the Twitters at Will underscore Bunch. Always great speaking with you, Will. I will look forward to the next national disaster uh, to to give you a call. (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, we'll, I'll know when it comes. Thanks a lot, Brad. Thanks, my friend. That was Master of Disaster, <laughs> uh, Will Bunch. Uh, all right, let's take a quick break here. And though the uh, hell, remember, does does he don't remember the end of uh, Goodfellas, the last uh, half hour or so no, of Goodfellas? I don't. Oh, you don't? No. Well, people who saw that movie will probably remember it with the helicopters continuing to circle above the studio over the past hour. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, go watch that movie. I'm <laughs> okay. I'm starting to feel more and more like uh, uh, Ray Liotta in that movie. Anyway, <laughs> okay. quick break, and we're back with some uh, better news, some some uh, brighter news. I think that's straight ahead on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. Our nightmare election may be over, but new ones are on the way. Here at the Bradcast and bradblog.com, we fight for election integrity all year around, like no other media outlet in the nation. But of course, we need your help to do it. 
Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate to make an automated monthly pledge of any amount you like, or even just a one-time-only contribution to help us remain on your public airwaves and completely independent. The fight for voting rights, civil rights, and to save our planet continues. Please help us continue that fight independently over your public airwaves by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate right now. Go ahead, do it right now. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. When tomorrow's vaccine and vaccination numbers come out, it will show that today we did it. Today we hit 200 million shots and the 92nd day in office. Looks like we made it. <laughs> yes, looks like we made it. Sort of to that goal. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Yes, it looks like President Biden has hit his double down goal of 200 the 200 million vaccine shots in his first 100 days in office. That, by the way, a doubling of his initial vow to vaccinate 100 million uh, uh, people in 100 days. So he made it a couple of days early. That's good news. Very good news. And so, uh, hey, if if that's the case, I am all in favor of this Joe Biden goal setting thing. <laughs> Especially when it comes to his Earth Day announcement uh, leaked today that he intends to commit to reducing carbon emissions by 50 percent below 2005 levels by 2030, which will require massive investment and changes to the U.S. economy and, as Biden hopes, reassert U.S. leadership on climate. This comes uh, as he is uh, having a, a, a two-day summit, two-day online summit uh, over Earth Day. Of course, as we like to say here on the broadcast and on the Green News Report. Every day is Earth Day. There you go. So <laughs> nothing special for us here, but we're glad that everyone else is paying attention. President Joe Biden will pledge to cut U.S. greenhouse gas emissions at least in half by 2030 as he convenes a virtual climate summit with 40 world leaders, according to three people with knowledge of the White House plans. AP says the 50% target would nearly double America's previous commitment and help the Biden administration prod other countries for ambitious emissions cuts as well. The proposal would require dramatic changes in the power and transportation sectors. Oh, no, we're all going to freeze to death, Desi Doyen. <laughs> That's what they tell me on Fox News. Oh, wait, that already happened, didn't it? In fossil fuel-loving Texas, where a winter cold snap resulted in hundreds of people dying from hypothermia in their own homes, because that state's privatized fossil fuel utility companies decided to save money and not winterize their system. So I guess we'll keep that in mind when the Fox News inevitably tells us how we're all going to die 
if we move forward with this plan. Hitting Biden's new emissions targets would include a significant increase in renewable energy like wind and solar power and steep cuts in emissions from fossil fuels like coal and oil. The pledge is a key element of the two-day summit, which begins on Thursday when world leaders will gather online to share strategies to combat climate change. China announced on Wednesday that President Xi Jinping will participate in that summit. That's kind of a big deal. They were holding out on whether he was going to attend or not. China is the world's uh, largest carbon polluter, according to AP, with the U.S. in second place. However, yes. I know you're already signaling. Yes, <laughs> yes. Well, because the, the U.S. is the, the the U.S. is the largest historical emitter. We have been emitting for decades longer than anybody else, and have a huge moral responsibility to take action. Not only that, we are the the largest emitter by far per capita. Exactly. So, uh, yeah, China may be the largest uh, polluter, but um, if if we all if we emitted at the same per capita rate that China did, we'd probably be in great shape. The European Union on Wednesday reached a tentative deal intended to make that 27 nation bloc carbon neutral by 2050. The uh, agreement commits the EU to an intermediate target of cutting greenhouse gas emissions by at least 55 percent by 2030 compared with 1990 levels. If I'm not mistaken, that's more aggressive than even Joe Biden is talking about for the U.S. Correct. Biden is looking at 50 percent from 2005 levels. EU is looking at 55 percent from 1990 levels. It's a bit easier for the EU because they have already been working very strategically in a measured and controlled fashion to integrate renewables into their systems. So they're actually close to getting there. You mean they haven't lost the last four years the way we yeah, have? Yeah, they haven't lost as many years as we have. The climate targets are a key requirement of the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement, which Biden rejoined on his first day in office after Donald Trump had removed us or tried to. It's also an important marker as Biden moves toward his ultimate goal of net zero carbon emissions by 2050. Is that doable, Desiree? Yes, Okay. It is hard. I'm going to hold you to it. It is challenging, but it is achievable. And the important point to make here is that it would uh, it would trigger a jobs boom trying to transition the entire economy and every sector of it. Oh, no, because no. Because that's what we know. No. Innovation creates no. jobs. No, this is going to cost <laughs> jobs. I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. It's going to be very just terrible. We're, we're all going to not only be frozen to death, but have no jobs uh, to carry out while we're freezing. And living in burlap sacks. Yes. Georgia Tech climate scientist Kim Cobb said on Tuesday after learning of Biden's plans, quote, wow, that's ambition with a capital A. That target, she said, would put us roughly in line with the most ambitious emissions reduction t- reductions targets projected by scientists and environmentalists. Our friend and regularish guest on the broadcast, Nobel Prize winning Pennsylvania State University climate scientist Michael Mann said that the 50 percent goal is, quote, precisely what is needed, an actionable goal within the next decade that puts us on the path toward limiting warming below a catastrophic 1.5 degree Celsius globally. Even Michael Mann is singing the praises here. That's good. He hasn't had much to be joyful about for the last, uh, well, many years. Biden has so far also 
paused new oil and gas drilling on federal lands and proposed a $2.3 trillion infrastructure plan that would remake the U.S. power grid and add 500,000 charging stations for electric vehicles, among other actions intended to sharply cut fossil fuel pollution, which contributes to our climate emergency. Senator Ed Markey, Democrat from Massachusetts, who introduced he reintroduced the Green New Deal on Tuesday. Yes, he did. With Congresswoman Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez of New York. Uh, he said that the 50 percent target was appropriate to meet the scope and scale of the climate crisis. The U.S. must be an undeniable global leader in climate action. He said we cannot preach temperance from a bar stool and not pay our fair share when approximately 40 percent of all the excess carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is red, white, and blue. Nicely painted, Senator. <laughs> a 50% reduction by 2030 is, quote, technically feasible and well within our reach, Markey said. We can and should fight to pass legislation and deploy funding that will allow us to exceed that target. Meanwhile, Senator John Barrasso, Republican from Wyoming, the top Republican on the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee, said that Biden's pledge would set punishing targets for the U.S., <laughs> even as adversaries such as China and Russia, quote, continue to increase emissions at will. Actually, I believe China said that they plan to reach net zero by 2060. And, if I recall. And they do. And in the meantime, they are moving very quickly to own the global clean tech market. So they're very glad when Barrasso says stuff like that. Thanks, Barrasso. Uh, the last thing the economy needs is higher energy prices and fewer jobs. But that's exactly what we're going to get, said the fossil fueled propagandist Barrasso from the fossil fuel state of Wyoming. And of course, he's lying because renewable energy is now cheaper than fossil fuel sources. On the other end of the political spectrum, however, the Center for Biological Diversity, a leading uh, environmental group, said the 50 percent cut, quote, simply isn't big enough to meet the massive scale of the climate emergency. They're not wrong, but you got to start somewhere. And that's it. We uh, will start there and we will end right here. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to Will Bunch of the Philly Inquirer, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it for free anytime at bradblog.com. Uh, and uh, while you're there, please consider stopping by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwaves talking about stuff that, well, looks like the rest of the world is finally catching up with. Good for them. Uh, all right, that's it. Oh, you can drop me an email. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, you will find me at the Brad Blog. We will see you there until we see you here next time. The helicopters are gone. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Looks like we made it.